Uh, looks like we're going to start with, uh, I guess that's Cohen and Kay. Got one other line ringing as well. So uh, you don't want to listen to me just blab about what I think is interesting. I'm much more interested in what is interesting to you. So uh, let's get started. Good morning, Cohen. Hey there, Bob. Uh, first off, I just want to thank you for being there and always be able to reach out to you. Well, it's always a pleasure. I can't say that uh, sometimes when that alarm goes off at 3.15 on Saturday mornings, my brain doesn't say, why are you doing this? And the cat says, you really ought to stay here in bed. But anyway, I'm glad to be here, and I sure appreciate you calling. How can I help this morning? So my inquiry is a little more meteorologically uh, related. Okay. Um, I live on the southeast side of town, kind of the uh, city base um, area of town. Okay. But I work up in shirts. Uh-huh. And uh, I'm working nights now, and I've been exposed to this little uh, phenomenon that's kind of weird to me. Um, when the northerns blow in and it's cold, um, we may not have ice when I'm leaving the parking lot up in shirts. Mm-hmm. And the, the thermometer in my vehicle will read, you know, somewhere around 40 degrees. Right. Um, I drive all the way back home to the southeast side of town, um, and it's colder by almost 10 degrees, and there's frost. <laughs> and I don't know if it's an elevation issue, like if the if the, uh, the, the cold front blows in. I'm near a creek. I'm near sure. Toledo Creek. Yep. So I don't know if that cold wind is just following the lowest um, terrain or elevation to where I am. But I was wondering if you had any input on that. I don't have a meteorologi- uh, meteorological buddy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I will ask my meteorologist friend sometime. But from my understanding, you know, cold air sinks. That is a very known fact. Cold air is denser than warm air, and it will sink. And, um, yes, as you're going to find pockets where it's always going to be substantially cooler. And interestingly enough, enough water tends to be sort of a, a uh, well, water changes temperature a lot more slowly than the air does. And when you are around water, uh, the temperature is going to stay cooler longer. It's one of the reasons the TxDOT will tell you that ice forms on bridges. Is uh, You think it's cold at your house. Go get underneath a bridge next to a creek or a river or something like that on one of these chilly yeah. mornings. Bob, I used to I used to ride motorcycle. Uh, <laughs> ride a motorcycle. Right. So just within, you know, the, the, being in the open air and, and coming home at night sometimes, yep. I would feel over the bridge around Toledo Creek, yep. at least like a noticeable drop in temperature, um, you know, somewhere near, you know, five to 10 degrees, sure. I'm, I'm assuming. But um, yeah, I've, I've left work in shirts at about like 35 degrees, yep. drove home and it's 23. Right. <laughs> yep. And the other thing that kicks in with this is you've probably noticed the winds tend to die. Now, sometimes if we've got a strong norther moving through, um, it's, you know, it's going to stay windy and that wind chill is going to play havoc with you. But in, on an average day, the wind dies down. When the wind dies down, the air starts to stratify and you will have a, you know, this happens inside my old house and, uh, I'll go home on a cold day and where's my kitty cat? He's up on the top of his scratching post, six and a half feet up in the air because he knows the higher he gets, the warmer it's going to be. 
And I keep my house a little bit on the cool side, but the same thing's happening with you um, on those chilly mornings. You know, you're driving in, and the more you sink down. It's interesting, here at the radio station, we get fog out over the way. There are two big fields. I don't know if you've ever driven down Eisenhower Road for KTSA. But uh, those two big fields coming in, um, gosh, one day last week, uh, there's this layer of fog that's about five feet thick. I can see the buildings, I can see the top of the towers, but I cannot see the ground on either side of the road simply because that air, and in this case that very moist air with all of the uh, uh, water droplets in it, with the cloud in it, so to speak, has just settled down and it's got a very flat top on it. Now, as we get into the day, we start getting a little bit of breeze and it starts mixing it up. So we no longer have this layer of the coldest uh, air on the ground with a little bit warmer, a little bit warmer. And, of course, you get up into the stratosphere and you start cooling down again. But I don't know that I can give you a true meteorological explanation, but I certainly can tell you that cold air sinks, cold air stratifies. And the closer you are to water, the longer that air is going to stay cold and the colder it's going to be. So, uh, you know, I watch the temperature gauge and... My business partner lives, uh, oh, just maybe a mile beyond the Guadalupe River, and she talks about when she starts in, the temperature will be, let's say the temperature will be 38 at her house. When she, you know, gets out her gate and starts down Edge Falls Road, then it may be 35, and when she makes that dip down across the Guadalupe, it may be 27. But uh, So it doesn't take a lot of change in elevation, especially around a water body, for you to get uh, yeah. substantially colder. Mm-hmm. Now, I had somebody call me one time talking about the subject of frost, and um, I'm not sure he's a meteorologist or just a weather scientist, but he was telling sure. me about the different kinds of frost and how it is possible for frost to form when a surface is cold and the air is warm so that you can get frost forming and that's how we can get frost forming at, you know, 38 degrees or something like that. Obviously, water doesn't become a crystal until it hits 32 or 0 right. Celsius if you're from the continent. But um, <laughs> the surface can get colder than the air above it, and that's where we can get frost forming. So I don't know if that answers your question, but maybe a little bit sure. more insight. No, it just feels good to talk to somebody who knows about it. The last thing that I would, that I would say is that, you know, yeah, I'm on the southeast side, and the northerns are coming from the northwest. So I would think that I would be shielded somewhat from like a heat island effect from the city, but nope. <laughs> well, but and just 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 keep in mind, too, how much concrete they're out there. And concrete's not quite as good about holding the cold as water is, but... Uh, <laughs> If you ever walk barefoot on a concrete floor yep. in the morning, you you know, like my porch outside, I don't have concrete floors inside. But if uh, the puppy dogs want to go out early, yeah, you step out on that concrete, it stays cold a lot longer than the air does. So anyway, well, it's always good to talk to you, and um, I wish you the best of the new year, and we'll talk again. It's good to talk to you. Likewise, Bob. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Bye. All right, it's going to be Kay and Jane and Nick, and Kay is up next. Good morning, Kay. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Thank you. I'm so glad you're there to answer our questions. I'll do my best. (laughs) Well, both of my questions come from someone else. Okay. So here goes. Uh, My sister-in-law has an old blush rose, Mm -hmm. and something is cutting the limbs off. 
And how large are these limbs? Are we talking uh, the size of a pencil, the size a little bit bigger than that, a little bit smaller than that? How how large are the limbs um, are being cut? She didn't say. I just asked, what's your question? <laughs> okay. And uh, would you know if the limbs are on the ground underneath or are the limbs being taken away? No, I think they're laying down on the ground underneath. Okay. It's unusual on roses because i don't think roses get a twig girdler but you know there there's a little uh beetle that you know hits things like pecans and cedar elms but i'm pretty sure in the case of a rose it's squirrels um i nobody really knows why they do at certain times they'll strip strip the bark off pecan trees they will literally cut limbs off of shrubs like pittosporum and roses and things like that so my guess is it is uh, almost certainly a squirrel hmm. or bushy tail mm-hmm. tree rat as i like to call them yeah i know they live in the country and i'd they have a dog. I I wouldn't think they would have many squirrels in the yard. But uh, I live in the country, possible. and I have two dogs, and uh, <laughs> two dogs and a twenty-two, and I've still got more uh, more squirrels than I know what to do with. No squirrels. Squirrels are ubiquitous. They're just everywhere, and there are huge numbers of them out there. But um, I would tell her that's almost certainly what's doing it. Uh, if you want to be sure, then, you know, one of the most fun devices you can get is a game camera. They're not all mm-hmm. that expensive. friend gave me one for Christmas last year. But um, uh, get a game camera. Put it out there, and you can see exactly what it is that's going after it. But I'd, I'd tell you with about at least 90% certainty that squirrels are, are what are doing the cutting on her old blush rose. Great old rose, by the way, and if you don't know where the name came from, it's one of those roses that as the blooms open, rather than fading, they become darker and darker, more and more colorful. They're blushing, in effect, and that's where the name Old Blush came from from for that rose. I didn't know that. I knew they were an old, old rose. That's why she got it, and we planted one in the Frontier Cemetery, but... It didn't make it. <laughs> well, they it do require water to get started. Once they get established, they're pretty tough. But, no, I'm pretty okay. sure that squirrels are what her problem is. Okay. My other question has to do with a friend's trees. Uh, several years ago, he exposed the root flares, mm-hmm. and he only uses organic fertilizer. Right. And when he moved there, there were already some ash trees there. Uh-huh. I'm not sure what kind, but more than likely Arizona. Right. And he said that they have a lot of borers in them. Uh-huh. And then he's, uh, I don't know, in the last few years he's bought some, um, oh, Monterey Oaks, and he said they have something that's called slime flux. It's a bacterial um, problem, but... Again, those trees will be healthier where he's exposed the flares, and it typically will, you know, go away with time. It's uh, the this uh, virtually all the bacterial problems are stress related. You reduce the stress. Um, certainly, Mother Nature's helped out with some rains recently. Uh, it's going to go away, away on its own. There's not really a whole lot you can do. Spraying with hydrogen peroxide, you know, will reduce it to some extent. Now, the kind of borers we get in ash trees, they bore pretty deeply into the wood, but they don't really affect the health of the tree that much. The borer 
Uh, we have something called a flathead borer that gets right underneath the bark of things like peaches and, uh, you know, various trees and just eats its way around right there in the cambium area. And they are very damaging. Fortunately, they're easy to get rid of. You can just make a fairly strong solution of orange oil and spray on the trunk and it will kill the borers underneath the bark. The borers that are in the ash tree, not going to work as well on. But uh, those borers aren't really causing that much damage to the tree. And every old tree around this relatively soft wooded, like an ash tree, like a tallow tree, uh, you're going to have some borers in them. But it's not, it's not the kiss of death for the tree. It's just one of those uh, old age problems that comes along. It's not going to be that significant. He was saying that the trunk was flaking off, you know, like it was soft, it was coming off. Well, you know, the bark is, in effect, dead tissue, and the tree constantly produces new bark to the inside, pushes the old bark off on the outside, and that's why with pecans and things like that, you'll have giant chunks of bark come off. Now, an old ash tree, it may get some dead wood, some areas of the tree trunk that are actually dead, and yes, the bark will flake off. It's been a hard year on ash trees because we had such a dry summer and fall, and um, he's probably just looking at basically, no other way to put it, senile trees. Their senescence occurs in plants just as it does in animals, and part of that is just what happens with old, old ash trees. But on the other hand, part of it's normal, and some bark flaking is not that uncommon the thing to do is look underneath and see if it looks like bare wood or see if you've got new callus tissue forming which would be pushing some of the old bark off but uh, uh anybody's got 40 50 year old ash trees better be thinking about what they're going to replace them with okay if he did spray with orange oil would that be what would the recipe be um you want to use probably about eight ounces to the gallon about a cup to a gallon you make it pretty strong, but that's not the type of borers he has in his ash tree aren't the ones that are going to be damaging to the tree. So I wouldn't suggest spending the money on it. Okay. All right. I'll tell him. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Kay. Thank you, and you have a good day. And I will move along and talk to Jane. Good morning, Jane. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. questions. Some of them you're going to be able to whip right through, and others we'll spend some time on. Okay. Number one, I've got some of those Cenisos in my front yard. Okay. And I've had them there for probably 25 years. And every year I try to do a little cutting back on them, but usually I wait till March. But they're already leafing out. Is it too dangerous or are we just in early spring and go for it? Well, I, you know, I don't think there's... Uh, anything to be lost by pruning them back at this time with Sinisa, as with all plants, you don't want to take off, you know, a real high percentage of the foliage. But um, even if you if you do cut it back now, even if you do stimulate some more new growth, which could potentially freeze, um, you're going to be cutting off that growth anyway if you wait till March, the time that we typically prune. So I'd be out there with your pruning shears this afternoon if they're starting to bud out already. Force them to put the growth into okay. where you want it. So, yeah, go ahead and prune. All right. Number two, I've listened to your directions on potatoes and written it down, but the one part I didn't catch was after we cut them into our pieces and roll, after we roll them in the rock phosphate, 
Do you wait for him to callous, or do you plant them no. right away? No. In my case, I'm walking along with a bucket of rock phosphate, or if I'm out of rock phosphate, I just use clean wood ashes. But, no, I'm just I'm coating the cut wound, and they're in the ground 10 seconds later. All right. And number three, I've got grasshoppers already. Is it too late already for my NOLO? Bag? No. Go ahead and get your NOLO and get it out as soon as you can. Uh, hopefully, well, you know, hopefully this cool weather. It was uh, down in the 30s at my home this morning. Uh, hopefully the cool weather will slow them down. But, no, you want to get them young. So I would go ahead and put some NOLO out anytime. All right. And then my next question is this is where i get into a little bit more um oh on nematodes should i should i put those out before i plant my potatoes or should i wait and is this an okay time to do nematodes it is there's never a bad time to do nematodes if you've had an issue with wireworms in the past which are actually the larvae of a click beetle or those segmented kind of orangey gold uh, two to three inch long creatures, those things can do damage to your potatoes. Uh, if you have not had wireworms, there's not a lot to be treating for at this point. I might wait a month before I put them out, but if you have had wireworms in your potatoes in the past, yeah, go ahead and put your nematodes out anytime. All right. I've had those pesky wireworms. Yeah. Well, get All your right. nematodes and put them out immediately. Okay. And, um, and I need to make some of my own potting soil. And I live in the historic reach of Hebner Creek. Okay. So I, I know that I've got wonderful soil in my yard because everything grows and I only go organic. Sure. So I was wondering if I could use some soil. It had to be turned up for an electrical conduit replacement sure. yeah. that CPS had to do. Right. Can I mix that with something? Yeah, I would add some compost to it. I would make it about a third compost, two-thirds native soil. And then, depending on how good a soil you want, other things you could consider adding would be some lava sand. You could add some azomite. You could certainly add some green sand, maybe a little bit of cornmeal, maybe a, bit of, a little bit of dry humate. All of those things will just keep you making your soil better, better, and better. But a basic soil, I'd use like two-thirds native soil and one-third compost. Cool. All right. And um, my next question is, all right, so when they turned up all that land back there for the electrical thing, uh -huh. I decided to turn that into a vegetable garden. Excellent. But I've, I've never had good production. It's only been a year or two, but... It seems like I'm concerned that maybe it's too shady. What kinds of things should I look at? Because I think the soil quality is good because of the organic and the amendments sure. I have done. Well, the uh, the shade would be a big issue, so do any tree trimming you can. Uh, the other thing is just fer fertility, you know, basic fertilizer. And I add a good dry organic fertilizer before I plant the garden, and then when it's up and growing six weeks later, then I start fertilizing every couple of weeks with a good liquid fertilizer. So if you've got good sun and good fertility, you should greatly, greatly improve the growth. And, Jan, I'm going to have to hold you there because I'm up to news time. We'll talk to Nick and Candy and Sandy right here on KTSA Radio, San Antonio. And let's just get started. Uh, good morning, Nick. Good morning. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Thank you for calling. I have uh, about uh, some privet hedges 
that have been allowed to grow into a hedge. I, I think they should have been trimmed with, for individual. Okay. Uh, we don't care for the long hedge. And so <laughs> how could I, if at all, could I trim those hedges back uh, deeply between each bush in order to get individual uh, bushes back. How how far apart on center from the base of one bush to the base of the next one? How far apart were they planted? I'm guessing about two and a half feet, maybe three. Okay, and you said that these are privets? Yes, I believe they are. Okay, well, if they are if they are planted that close together... Uh, there's not really any way that you can go through and plant by plant, uh, you know, cut them back to the point that you will see individual plants. What, what I would think about doing, if they're that close together, I go in there and totally remove every other plant. I'd want them, you know, five feet apart instead of uh, two and a half feet apart because privet, there are many forms of privet, but all of them are going to form a plant that's three or four or even five feet in diameter so if you want to get away from the look of the hedge and go back to seeing individual plants i'd just i just take out every other plant after that you can start pruning on them just to shape them you'll have to prune you know very carefully and uh like most evergreen shrubs we try to never take away more than half of the foliage bearing part of the plant at one time but um to try to cut them all way way back individually they're going to grow back together again probably with six months time and this is just going to be an ongoing battle but uh um, if they're that close together, I mean, they shouldn't have been planted that close together to begin with. Uh, if you wanted to see individual plants, I just go in and, um, you know, go through and, and tag the ones that are most healthy and least healthy, and then just kind of go through and figure, okay, if I'm going to take out every other one, uh, which, where do I start to try to, that I'm, so that I'm trying to leave as many of the healthy ones and take out any of them that are a little bit weaker, but then I just go down the row and just take out every other one. Okay, very good. If I made a error in thinking how far apart they are, if 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 they were a, a dwarf privet hedge, mm-hmm. and they were and they were that far apart, or maybe even four feet apart, could you still trim at all? Oh, sure, sure. Um, and now would probably be the time of year to do it. Normally, I'd be waiting probably until the end of March, but I, I would wait until you see the buds start to swell, and then it's just a matter and effect of cutting it back to the point that you want them to branch out. And you know, remember, their privet's a fairly fast-growing plant, so don't just don't give them a light haircut, or they're going to be back to the same old problem three months from now. But you would go through and selectively. You're doing this with pruners, not with shears that you know cut everything you know off at one level, like you're trying to do a topiary or something. But you can certainly go through and um, you know and just selectively prune and and you know take out a lot of that area between and it can be you know can be pruned fairly heavily without harming it i would very definitely follow up with some good organic fertilizer either before or after you do the trimming so that you will get good healthy growth fairly quickly on those plants but uh no it's uh uh it's certainly that something that can be done 
Uh, if you're here in San Antonio or if you're close enough to San Antonio to, to come in without too much problem, uh, two weeks from today, I'm going to teach a class on everything about pruning, and uh, I'll have plants to prune and a blackboard to show you all the theory behind it. You might enjoy coming and learning but uh, at, at this point, basically, all I, since I can't show you over the air, uh, you simply want to go through and selectively prune back individual branches to the point that you would like them to branch and fill out. Now, uh, you know, as the top of the plant gets thicker, the lower part that doesn't get as much light, that's not going to regrow quite as thickly, you know, as it would have when the plants were first planted. But you've already mentioned you weren't interested in a dense hedge, so that's no big deal. But if you want to go ahead and work on it and get out those shears, and like I say, it's going to be um, start at the far end. Start the area that you, you know, see the least because it's definitely going to be a learning curve. The last one you prune, you're definitely going to do a better job than you do on the first one you prune. So, uh, but, uh, yeah, if they are, if they are four or five feet apart and you want to see individual plants, that's very doable. But if they are two, two and a half, even three feet apart, you're going to be happier if you take out every other one. You're going to have to work a lot less hard to maintain uh, the look of individual plants. Okay, very, very good. Is this a good time of the year to start to do that? Well, you know, ideally, we want to prune just before the new growth begins. And uh, with Texas weather, I never use the word normal. I use the word typical. In a typical year, we are pruning mid-February to early March. This year, because uh, a lot of things are starting to bud and come out early, we may move that up a couple of weeks, uh, especially on things like roses, some of which are beginning to put on a lot of growth. But look very carefully. If your privet are starting to bud and make new leaves, prune them now. If not, put it off a couple of weeks. All right. Very, very good. We really appreciate your program. We've been listening to it for years. Well, you're very kind. I appreciate it, and I just want to help you avoid making all the mistakes that I've made on pruning and other subjects. So you call me anytime. Feel free to call me back after you go out and look and see how close those uh, plants actually are if you want to talk about that a little bit further, Nick. I look forward to hearing from you. All right. Thank you very much. You're certainly welcome. <laughs> Goodbye. All right. Next in line is Candy. Good morning, Candy. Good morning, my favorite plant guru. How are you? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm better than ever now that you've told me that, so I'm doing well. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have three questions for you. First of all, I, I don't ever hear of, I know that the, I think there's some really, really expensive ones um, grown in Italy, but I'm talking about mushroom truffles. Okay. Can you grow those here? Not well. I mean, you can you can grow mushrooms. Now, truffles are a very specific kind of mushroom that I don't think you will do well here. We actually at one time um, found a company that was making, uh, in effect, a kit that had everything you needed to, um, you know, grow your own mushrooms. And it was it was an interesting thing. And the mushrooms that you got probably only ended up costing you about $100 a pound. Um, so it, it can be done, but there's a real science to it. And you don't want to make mistakes. You want to be sure that you're, you know, getting edible mushrooms. There is a big mushroom farm over toward Gonzales 
Uh, in fact, yeah. uh, you know, place that sells uh, compost or sells mushroom compost. If I were thinking about growing mushrooms, I would give them a call and see if they ever do seminars or classes or things like that and learn from the people, you know, who have done it. Um, we tried it and we were successful growing from uh, these little kits that you can buy. Um, but like I say, for the amount of mushrooms we got, uh, it was not economically viable. I'll just put it that way. Yeah, I was afraid of that. Okay, um, I bought some uh, 10-gallon plant bags. Okay. And I'm just going to grow some little veggies and stuff in there. Uh-huh. How, how deep can I, I call it cheater soil, how deep can I, do I put the cheater soil before I put in the good compost? Or well, <laughs> you're going to have good roots where you have good soil. And the better your okay. roots are, the better your plants are going to be and the better the vegetables are going to be. So um, I, I'm i not a big fan. I, you know, people tell me, oh, I'm going to fill the bottom with styrofoam peanuts. I'm going to fill the bottom with all this sort of stuff. Mm. But every time that you are taking away good soil, you're reducing the root system of your plants and you're reducing the quality of your produce. And yeah. keep in mind that soil, now I'm not talking about all this stuff based on Canadian peat moss, which I don't like, but true soil it lasts for thousands of years. It's been here thousands of years, and it's going to be here a whole lot longer. So I look at gardening, whether it's a raised bed, and I'm in the process of creating a bunch of raised beds. I'm kind of moving a lot of my vegetable gardening activities up a little closer to my house where I can fight the squirrels and varmints a little bit more. But uh, I'm doing just what you're talking about. I'm taking basically a good native soil, and I am improving it. But uh, I would not be putting junk in the bottom of those uh, of those beds. I'd basically, you know, if you want to put half an inch of gravel or something on the bottom just to ensure that you've got good drainage, which is not usually a problem to begin with in a fabric bed, but... Don't uh, it, it to me it would be better to have fewer beds with good soils than to have a bunch of beds with mediocre soils. So um, <laughs> it it's uh, uh, kind of like my dentist. I don't know if he still does. I've noticed, but I uh, used to have a uh, a sign up in his office that said, "You don't have to floss all your teeth, just the ones you want to keep." So you don't have to put good soil in all of your beds, just only in the ones that you want the plants to do well. Okay, so would uh, can Gardenville give me everything that I need? I tell you, in all honesty, I think uh, I think New Earth is making a better soil now. Gardenville's uh, into using a lot of biosolids and other things that I really don't approve of in garden soil or anywhere else. But uh, um, uh, there are several locations around town of Stone and Soil Depot, and that's where I go to buy soil, and I specify. Uh, the organic, certified organic uh, compost-based soils. Uh, and the New Earth is by far our biggest soil producer in the area, and I believe they're producing the best soils, best compost out there right now. But uh, uh, for convenience sake, I mean, for me, it's a five-mile drive to uh, Stone and Soil, and it's a 25-mile drive out to New Earth. So um, I'm buying New Earth soils, but I'm buying them mainly from Stone and Soil Depot. Okay. All right. 
I've got a stone and soil that's just right down 46. It's real close. Well, you go down there and see them and tell them you want their best garden soil with the, and then add a little bit more of that good certified organic manure compost to it, and uh, you'll grow great plants without breaking the bank, Candy. Uh, stone and soil is just, uh, just a good company to deal with. Okay. Okay, and one last thing. Dear Lord, they've, I've already started with the fleas. Okay. Start with the I nematodes. Can't it. Yep. Yeah, and is it for the for the? I'm just calling them flea nematodes for lack of a better mm-hmm. description. Um, can I put them out anytime? I don't have to worry about freezing or anything like that. Freezing is not a concern, but I like the live beneficial nematodes come on little blue sponge. And um, the soil, when you first put your nematodes out, they move in a film of water. So you want your soil to be fairly moist. And right now with the, thank goodness we've gotten back into some good rains, our soils are relatively moist. And so now is a great time to put your uh, beneficial nematodes out. I would water thoroughly either before or after uh, but that's just to help the nematodes disperse through the soil. Once they are in the soil, they if there's enough soil to keep the plants alive, there's enough soil to keep the nematodes alive. But you want the soil moist when you put it out just because they move in a film of water. Uh, they don't dig their way through. So uh, that's uh, freezing weather doesn't concern me. I would not put it out while the temperature is below 32 degrees, but I'm not going to be out doing anything very much when the temperature is below 32 degrees unless it's cutting more firewood. So uh, uh, 40 degrees, 35 degrees, or 60 degrees, uh, this is an ideal time to put out your live beneficial nematodes. Okay. Uh, the moron who lives next door decided that he was <laughs> going to be extremely helpful, and he sprayed... I, and I don't even know what it was. I was so angry it didn't make any difference. Uh, he sprayed some pre-emergent, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm afraid that's going to have an effect on my nematode, didn't nope. it? No, probably not. Um, the pre-emergents are, are bad for a lot of things, including people and pets, but uh, they are not really that destructive to the nematodes. And when you buy that little blue sponge, even if you get the small sponge, you're getting a million nematodes. Uh, if he kills 10% of them, you still got 900,000 of them out there working for you. So uh, um, I, I wouldn't be overly concerned about that. I might be concerned about fleas coming from his yard into yours, but uh, I, I like that. We could do a book called The Moron Next Door. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. There you go. There you and go. He, the look on his face, he was so shocked, and he said, but I was trying to help you, and I said, oh, well, that didn't work out very well, did it? <laughs> um, well, I okay. wouldn't lose too much sleep over that, but I certainly wouldn't be going barefoot in that area anytime soon. Oh, no. Oh, no, no, no. No, no, no. I wish I could keep my cats out of his yard. I sure would. Yeah. Um. Okay. I think that takes care of it. You know where to find me if you need more candy. You have a great oh, weekend. I- I do, I do. Oh, quick, one quick question. Uh, how many square feet does uh, a sponge take care of? Small sponge does about 2,000 to 2,500. Average yard needs one sponge from the back, one sponge for the front. Small okay. yard, one is plenty. Okay. Okay, I sure do appreciate it, Bob. Have a great weekend. You do the same. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. 
All right, Sandy, Chris, Kay, and Sylvia as Sandy's first. Good morning, Sandy. Hi. Um, I've got some lantana that are in pots, the old-fashioned ones. Okay. And they do, and they just do great. Uh-huh. Do I still have to cut those back? Um, I would, you know, base that on how large you want them to be. The old-fashioned lantanas can tend to get very, very large and mm-hmm. uh, realize that any lantana is basically going to double in size. If that's going to be okay. too big for you this summer, then I would prune them some. If uh, you want bigger plants and more flowers, just keep fertilizing and don't even get out the pruning shears. Most years... The old-fashioned kind freezes back, and we always prune mm-hmm. to take off any dead wood. But uh, this has been a very unusual year. So I, whether you prune or not, it, it's not going to affect the flower production or anything else. It's just going to affect the size of the plant. So it's kind of like a haircut. It's up to you. You want your hair short or long? Well, <laughs> you make the decision with the pruning shears instead of the instead of the other shears. Okay. Then I've got some... Uh... Uh, gold lantana yes, uh-huh. in the ground, but it's constantly got lace bugs. I spray it with spinosad. It does not work. You need to water more and fertilize more. Uh, people talk about how drought tolerant uh, lantana is, but I can tell you it will survive a drought and it will get covered with lace bugs. But you look at uh, the Bill Millers and the places around that have those glorious big beds of new gold lantana. Oh, Station yeah, too. they're they're watering them three times a week. Uh, in my beds, I've got some. I'm planting a bed in front of my barn. Uh, I don't water as much as I probably should, but again, I live on a well and we don't have unlimited water. But uh, you increase your watering, your fertilizing, uh, the uh, the lace bug will be a thing of the past. Okay, and uh, one other thing, and I've got a little. Uh, Oh, chives and uh, chili patine bush and mint. Is it better to put compost on that instead of, say, uh, mulch? I, well, chives, you really don't want to bury too deeply with anything. I probably wouldn't be putting any, I wouldn't, on both of those plants, I'm probably not going to be putting anything but fertilizer on them. I don't think either of those will benefit that much from compost or mulch, either one. Now, at the time you plant, maybe uh, fortify the soil with some compost and things Mm -hmm. like that. But those two productive little plants, I'm not putting anything but good liquid fertilizer on them. Okay, and I can use the, excuse me, the, the lawn organic on that, on my uh, the, the, the things that I'm going to eat. Well, uh, I would I would use a liquid just because it'll be better for the plants. But yes, okay. you can certainly use that on things you're going to eat. Uh, again, I use a lot of those uh, two liquid fertilizers from Medina. Fox Farms is making uh, some very good organic liquid fertilizers. Mm-hmm. I believe even Espoma has a good organic liquid, and I'd be happy okay. with any of those on uh, on chili pecans and. Uh, uh, chives and along with your rosemary and thyme and sage and parsley and cilantro and all those other good things you can grow. Mm-hmm. I I find that they dry out so so fast. Uh-huh. I was asking about the the compost or the mold. If you want to put something on that will help hold moisture, uh, a little bit of lava sand would be much more effective than compost. Okay, okay. well that'll do it. Very good. You get out and have a wonderful day, Sandy. <laughs> 
day. Thank, Thank you. you. Certainly. Bye-bye. All right. Next up is Chris. Good morning, Chris. Hi, Bob. Hi there. Good morning to you. Good morning. Say, I have some African violets on my kitchen windowsill. It's on the west side of the house. Uh-huh. They, they're probably 25 years old. I just keep on, you know, keeping on with them. <laughs> and, and I had sugar ants in and around my kitchen sink there for a while in November and December, and I noticed sprinkle aspartame around aspartame. And I thought it, and I thought I had gotten rid of them. Mm-hmm. But about two weeks later, I realized, no, they're in the African violets now. So after about eight weeks of sprinkling aspartame on the kitchen windowsill and sprinkling it on the top of the, you know, the dirt uh-huh. in there, they're just multiplying in that dirt because every time I water it, I see them all coming out. So I'm wondering if there's anything else I can do, maybe pour something in there. You know, you just have to be really, really careful because African violets are delicate plants, and you certainly don't want to burn their roots. And I would be a little concerned uh, with something like orange oil. But now, if you want to use a little spinosad, spinosad is a very good ant killer. It's water-based. It's based, actually, on a soil bacteria. So I don't think you would hurt anything uh, to mix up a little spinosad and use that to water your African violets. There should be nothing in there that would be harmful to the plants, but spinosad should do a pretty good job of taking care of the ants. Uh, you'll buy it under a weird name. The most common brand of spinosad I'm seeing is called Captain Jack's Dead Bug. Now, don't ask me where they come up with these names, but uh, a liquid spinosad product. Um, you could also use a spinosad soap which uh, I use that more as a spray than as a drench. But in your situation, I'm probably just going to look for liquid spinosad under whatever name I uh, buy it. I'm going to mix it according to the directions and just use that to water those African violets. Okay, good deal. And one one more question about those African violets, and this sounds so silly when I, since I've had them for 25 years, but how should I be feeding them? Okay. I use Garrett Juice Plus on them every time that I uh, water them. Which is if your week. plants are doing beautifully after 25 years, don't change a thing. I can't <laughs> improve on your success. I would be using some Has to Grow or something like that in addition, but uh, if it works, I'm not going to mess with it. Okay, good deal. Well, they don't bloom that often because I have two big Monterey oaks right yeah. outside the window. And, well, think and about getting my... one of these new LED plant lights. Uh, they're pretty inobtrusive, and they're doing some really good things. I've got to get out and do a little more research on that as well to find out what kind of fixtures are out there. But the LED lights produce, uh, at least most of them, produce far more light in the wavelength that plants benefit from than even the fluorescents do. And uh you may be able to just uh, brighten up your kitchen a little bit at the same time you really make your plants happier. Oh, that's a nice idea. Well, thank you so much for your good suggestions. Always. always. You all, have a wonderful day. Bye. You do the same, Chris. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Certainly. Bye. All right. Back to gardening is Kay, Sylvia, Roger, and Lou. Good morning, Kay. Good morning. I thought of some more questions. Oh, well, I'm right here for you. Okay. Um Way in the backyard, I've taken in a little bit of pasture, and there's a sticker burr patch. And I've been looking for compost in bulk, mm-hmm. but I've not been able to find any in my area. I was wondering, would the mushroom compost work for that? Oh, yeah. Any compost is going to work for that. Anything's full of humic acid and fulvic acid. Uh, mushroom compost is a bit pricey. 
but it's um, it's it's absolutely you know top quality material. Occasionally, I worry a little bit about uh, getting it a little salty, having a little too much sodium in there. But uh, used outside, you know, it's that's not likely to be an issue. So you're over toward Shiner. Where are you located? Yes, I'm okay. in Shiner, but Gonzalez, it's just down the road. Yeah, yeah they will have that. And, um, oh, golly, um, I'm trying to say you've got one of your big feed stores over there uh, that may have the New Earth compost that um, uh, I'm trying to remember exactly where it well, is. Well, have used to in Quero, but they, they don't anymore. They don't anymore. Okay. Mm-hmm. Then in that case, no, I'd be heading to Gonzalo, or, uh, yeah, heading over for the mushroom farm. And, uh, there may be somebody else producing some good turkey compost, but I, uh, you know, I don't know that anybody mm-hmm. has much in bulk, but I have no problem with mushroom compost. That's very definitely going to help with your, uh, grass spur issue. Well, that would be more economical, right, than uh, top-shelf bags of top-shelf. Oh, yeah, I'm not going to be buying anything like that. I, You know, if I were in a position that I could not get it delivered to me uh, reasonably, you can always, you know, ask around. Maybe you've got a neighbor has got a trailer you can borrow and, uh, you know, run even into san antonio we're not <laughs> we're not that far away uh but no that would be to me that would be preferable to buying any bagged compost whether it's top shelf or nature's creation or any of them but uh or, you know maybe you can talk a friend who's got you know a nice little 16 foot trailer and a tarp to put over it uh tell him you'll buy his gas and he can go buy a load half for you and half for him or her but, uh, you know, barring doing something like that, I'd be perfectly happy with the mushroom compost. Okay. And one other quick question that you've answered a million times. Um, fire ant drench, the orange oil, what's the recipe? Uh, roughly two ounces per gallon, um, and it works really well. Now, if I'm going to pour it through a pot, I'm going to cut it way back because orange oil is a desiccant. It's a drying agent. The way it actually works on the fire ants, it acts like a solvent on their exoskeleton. It's not the orange oil that kills them. It's all the little microbes that set in upon them and kill them when they've uh, gotten a little drenched with orange oil. So uh, I'm going to cut it back to as little as a teaspoon per gallon if I'm pouring it through pots with living plants but if it's out on the lawn if it's out in the open if it's in my case i've been laying some flagstone and uh uh with the good rains we've had the past three weeks or so the fire ants are just showing up and i just keep a, a watering can full of my fire ant drench in this case i'm uh using that nature's creation uh they call it mound drench but uh which is based on a, a rosemary oil um I think it's rosemary and thyme, but but just orange oil alone works really well. About two ounces per gallon. Uh, you might uh, add just a little bit of molasses to it. I think it'll make it even more effective. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Thank you for the call this morning, Kay. Uh, next up will be Sylvia. Good morning, Sylvia. Hi, Bob. Hi there. Um. Hi. I had uh, tra- I have a fire bush that I transplant i took from one area that was not sunny to a very sunny area uh-huh. i think i got enough brew ball but the leaves were kind of droopy i've been watering it like every other day i know it's not dead because you know the uh, branches they bend sure um do you think you'll make it or is there anything else i can 
put on it. So I, I would will... put either a little Garrett juice or a little Super Thrive in the water next time you water. Now, be careful that okay. you're not keeping it too wet. Uh, I mean, you could okay. miss the foliage. You could take a little spray bottle and put either or both uh, Super Thrive and Garrett juice in there. You could miss foliage 10 times a day, and it wouldn't be too much. But we don't want to keep the soil too soggy wet. It's not that the water hurts, but when you have too much water in the soil, it drives the oxygen out. And that firebush's roots need oxygen. So I want to be sure you're not keeping it just overly saturated. Uh, but if you okay. want to help the plant get through the transplant shock, you do that just by misting the top of the plant. Now, nine years out of ten, firebush freezes to the ground and comes right back out. So it's a tough, hardy plant. And we're certainly not out of the woods for having frost or freezing weather. So um you may want to cover it or protect it if we're going to get a really chilly night but for now all i'd think about doing is just misting it watching my watering on it and i'm going to give you at least a 90 percent chance it's going to come through just fine um at shades of green did you all sell sell that that uh, garage juice you oh, yeah. have it there yeah oh, okay okay and then is there something i have that real shade area something about a shrimp plant mm-hmm. does that really doesn't need too much sun Shrimp, shrimp plant um, is a great plant for the shade. I like to say bright shade, where it's bright enough to cast a shadow. It will grow almost okay. anywhere, but in bright shade, it'll bloom 10 months out of the year. The hummingbirds will bring you a thank you note for planting shrimp plant. It's uh, one of the toughest, prettiest plants out there and just blooms all the time. And just, you know, with a little water, a little fertilizer, it's just not going to have any problems at all for you. It's a great plant. Oh, okay. Because I probably, that's what, you know, whenever you do get that, you know, at the garden center, I'll probably get some because that fire bush, uh, I think I told you, it only bloomed one time and I had it six years. It's green, green, but that's why I happened to move it to this sunny area. Well, it's going to bloom a lot them. more for you. And, uh, yeah, shrimp plants starting to come in. And uh, I, I just don't totally trust the weather. I'm not real gung-ho about no jumping the gun on planting things that could potentially freeze but um i'm just i guess i'm basically a little more cautious person but uh it's been a most unusual year but shrimp plants tough enough that even if it does freeze back it'll come right back out okay oh and also they were mentioned to me um i forgot which lady uh, a barbados uh, cherry tree okay. is that okay to get now and just keep it until this pass or, or wait oh, sure. later or, or you wait, do wait, whatever wait. you like uh, i would probably go oh. with the dwarf barbados cherry it's going to get about dwarf. two to three feet tall the regular barbados okay. cherry i do not think is as pretty a plant it's going to get five or six feet but i love that dwarf barbados cherry but again oh, okay. it's but one of those crazy. if you want to plant it now you i'm sorry plant Go ahead and plant it. Should I cover it up? Or if you if you if could, yeah, if you could cover it, if we got a hard freeze, you can go ahead and plant it. Otherwise, keep it in the pot for until we're past the danger of a hard freeze. But just throw a little, a little insulate over it. We're not likely. That's one thing about February. We rarely get really really hard freezes. We almost always have uh, you know some freezing weather, but usually it's not a real severe freeze, and you can protect things very well by covering. Now, I don't necessarily believe in all of the old sayings, but uh, I had quite a thunderstorm at my house earlier this week, and the old adage is if it thunders in January, it's going to freeze in April. 
I hope that's wrong, but I simply throw it out there because if you talk right. to any of the old timers around, there are a lot of them believe in that. And we, this is very definitely a year that most of us had some thunder in January. So uh, I'm going to, I've got several sheets of insulate I've already got, always got handy to put over things. And, oh, and does that also that tree? Does it need sun, or can it be partial sun, or does it have to be like full? The more sun? more sun, the more flowers. More sun, okay. And, and does it actually have uh, cherries, like little cherries? Oh or, yes, but or? they're not edible. They're not. That's what I was going to no, ask you. They're they okay. they look like little cherries, but. Uh, uh, I've never tried one. Maybe they are edible. <laughs> I don't, oh, okay. uh, e- even the birds don't really go after them too much. So I think they're oh, much okay. more ornamental than they are culinary. When they told me about it, I checked it on the website. I mean, it looks real pretty. Oh, they are do, you pretty. Have to, do, do you have the dwarf and the big one? Do you have both of them? I can't now, tell you if they're in stock. You know? I mean, our inventory changes. We had our busiest okay. January in history, but, uh, they are things that we normally keep in stock. So I'll just put it that so the, way. So the big one is it's okay, but it's the the shorter one is more pretty. The shorter one is thing. much more manageable, and in my opinion, a much prettier plant. Oh, okay. All right, then. Okay. Okay, then thanks for your time. Thank you. Always a pleasure, Sylvie. Thank you. <laughs> Goodbye. And I do have one line open. I know, uh, you know, with all the commercials, sometimes it uh, you're on hold for a while, and uh, some people like me do have to get up and go to work on Saturday mornings. But anyway, one line's there if you want to grab it, 210-599-5555. We're going to talk to Roger and Lou and Shirley, and Roger's up first. Good morning, Roger. Good morning, Bob. Bob, I need your help. My house is full of rats. My garage is full of rats, and I... I tried to get Amazon to sell me some fresh club, and I ended up getting a phony baloney Amazon, so I canceled the credit card. Well, and they are tearing up my kitchen, the vehicle, and everything. Well, there there are a couple of options. Um, one thing that sounds strange, but I've had more people tell me that it works. Uh, putting out salt, just rock salt, you know, go to the grocery store and spend a dollar or two, you get a bag of that, uh, I think it's Morton's rock salt you like to use in your ice cream freezer. I can't tell you why it works, but I've had more people tell me that they just take, like, little tubs, like, you know, what margarine would come in or um, almost any little shallow uh, container just putting out drops, little little containers of salt in cabinets and open areas, the rats simply seem to move out, and I have no idea why that is. But um, that is the simplest thing that I've heard of, and a lot of people have told me that it's worked very, very well for them. Now, I like, uh, as far as traps, I like some of these electronic traps that do kill rats. Uh, rats are hard to kill. You can't use the same thing used for a mouse because blasted rats have to be zapped numerous times. I won't go to all the physiology behind that, but there are some pretty good electronic rat traps out there that work. But I tell you, and I'm trying at my barn right now because I've had some rat issues this year, but um, just for whatever reason, putting out a number of containers of salt seems to run the rats off. And I don't know whether they're actually getting into it and um, whether it's causing them some digestive issue or whether they just simply don't like something about it. But uh, a lot of folks are totally controlling the rat problems with salt. Bob, last, yesterday I was at 99 cent store. This lady told me about that 
So, and not, but the only thing I live out in the country, but I live in Converse, uh-huh. not by the airport, by Randolph. I live eight miles outside from Randolph, outside six to four ten, and I live in the country. My vehicle quit on me about two weeks ago. I have no transportation, nothing. Mm-hmm. I pay people, but they charge me over fifty dollars just for one wild trip. Well, hey, just however you know, however whoever. Uh, helps you with getting groceries and things like that. Just have them pick up some salt, you know, when they're when they're doing other things for you. They're, uh, you know, you've, you've got you've always got a good church in the neighborhood with uh, some folks who would probably help out. And uh, life, you know, it me it just isn't always fair. But uh, when you know wherever wherever you're getting groceries and things like that uh they can certainly help you get some salt as well and i'm afraid that's that's my best suggestion is almost uh you know virtually no cost and uh i'm sure there's somebody out there that'll happily happily help you find some Roger and i wish you the best on that uh let me talk to Lou good morning Lou hello Lou good morning good morning um, yeah, I've been listening to all of the chat and the news and ads, and actually, I got a lot of good information. Um, <laughs> well, okay, well, so, ho- probably uh, not from the news or the ads, but hopefully from the other uh, callers, you've gotten some good information. <laughs> I don't want to travel to China. I no. can say that much. No. Okay, so first of all, I just want to thank you. Um, I bought a peperomia plant, a little one, mm-hmm. from within one of your um hothouses of uh, last year and one of my nieces was over here and she looked at it and i said something about it and she goes oh i thought that was artificial it's so pretty <laughs> and it and it is and i use the um and thank you for so much referral to organic gardening and lawn care um i'm i'm i couldn't be happier so i use yeah. medina has to grow when i water it you know i fertilize it um kind of regularly and it's just so pretty and Uh, they're fun fun plants i tell you one other thing lou um if you ever want to make more of them peperomias are very unusual in that you know how people used to tell you about growing new plants from one leaf off of their african violet they get a whole new plant Peperomias uh-huh. are the same way. You can, uh, oh, wow. if it's big enough that you want to give up a leaf or two, you can take a container, you know, a little pot full of perlite or something like that, and you do exactly the same thing. But peperomias are capable of making whole new plants from that adventitious oh. tissue in the stems of the leaves. So if that niece mm-hmm. or whoever else um, you wants, if, if you want to create a good little gift, for her as a piece of your own plant. That, that's one of the fun things about peperomias. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. But there are so okay. many different kinds. There there must be 50, 60 different ones. From your description, I think you probably got this one. The common name is owl eyes with a fairly big leaf. But, uh, yeah, peperomias mm-hmm. are neat plants, and there are a lot of, mm-hmm. lot of new varieties out on the market right now. Yeah, they're pretty. Okay, so um, I in the fall, I have a peach tree question okay. and a grass question. So last fall, I took y'all's advice, and y'all are so wonderful about your generosity with your knowledge um, as well as your product. So I purchased some of the um, fertilizer again. I've been organically gardening my lawn now for going on a year and a half, and Good. it's like transformation. 
Um, and anyway, so I put down the fertilizer with a spreader. And then uh, just recently, I put down the Medina Plus with my hose, sprayed front, back in backyard. And then I scalp the weeds. I, I live on a green belt. So I get a lot of weeds in my backyard this time mm-hmm. of year. And so I scalp the weeds down with my weed eater. And then I spray the lawn really good with the Medina Plus. And the front yard hardly gets, you know, hardly no weeds at all. But I sprayed it anyway. Sure. Um, today, thanks to y'all's referral too, I'm having, I purchased three cubic yards of the animal compost from Soil and Stone Depot, and they also were able to give me the name of someone who's going to trailer it for me, come <laughs> over here, deliver it, and put it down, because I can't do all that work myself. And so I can't wait to get my manure on my grass. Well, but anyways, thank you for everything. It's my for pleasure. For referrals. It's, um, I've been sharing your shop. And your uh, your nursery and your wisdom with my family and my well, friends you're and kind. getting them on board too. So about the 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 peach tree. So I know it's getting close to pruning pruning time for plants, and I listen to what you say uh, seriously about you know watch for hard freezes, and it could happen in April and blah blah blah. So with my peach tree, um, it is going. It's probably coming up on about six foot tall, and it's got all these beautiful. All the leaves have fallen off, but it's got all these beautiful bare limbs. You know, reaching to the heavens and like a circular canopy, like. Um, and um, so I'm wondering if I should be taking some of those limbs off of the base of the trunk because they start really, really low, like yeah. within less than um, eight inches or a foot from the ground. Those could um, be so I'm coming. Wondering when yeah. I, st- I, I would take those. How, how much do I trim? How well, far up the trunk? That is up to you, but I definitely would trim everything up to about two feet in height. Um, okay, when you right. get down low, I worry more about something sprouting out from the rootstock. So I take off all the side limbs up to about two feet. Beyond that, okay. every year you're going to want to just kind of thin out the top of the tree. That's what's going to keep it blooming well and making as much uh, produce, as many peaches as possible. So, yeah, and I would do it right now. I mean, we start pruning our fruit trees okay. as soon as the leaves fall off. So they're one of those ones we don't have to wait for just the exact right time. Anytime they're fully deciduous in the winter is a good time to do your thinning there. But I'd be cutting off anything, you know, within 18 to 24 inches of the ground and then just going through and do a little thinning on the top of the tree. Uh, peaches grow so fast, you know, three months after it started mm. growing, you're going to just going to be all filled back out beautifully. But, yeah, okay. you'd this be the day would okay. be a good, great day to get out and get it done. Okay, and they're freeze hardy, aren't they? I don't have to cover them. My my, I put the tree in the ground last year, last yep. summer, and I had grown it in a pot for a year from a peach. Yep. Peaches, uh, peaches uh, are hardy seed. down down to single digits. Okay. Now, if they bloom okay. too early, you can lose your fruit if we have a late freeze. But the trees themselves mm-hmm. are uh, totally cold hardy in this area. Okay. Okay. Second and last question. It has to do with grass. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I've invested, you know, money, time work on my beautiful front lawn (laughs) and i love it so i live in a tiny neighborhood and uh uh, people today with these tiny yards in my neighborhood they tend to walk their dogs and i love dogs i've had dogs Mm -hmm. big dogs but they tend to walk their dogs and use people's front lawns as their dog park and watering hole and poop place and so I have to, like, go out there and ask them onesie-twosie, would you please not let your animal, you know, 
do the liquid and the hard stuff in my grass. Right. Um, I spend a lot of money on it, and in the summer too, that that liquid just totally yeah. uh, annihilates spots. my my hard work and my money. So anyway, the thing, the question for you is this, and I don't know if you have an answer, but is there a, a, an organic, healthy way to deter dogs with, you know, with regard to smell or whatever, <laughs> to deter them from even wanting to step foot into my grass? Okay, you need to look for something that is called a scarecrow. It's not the old-fashioned thing like we put in the corn patch, but it's like a little sprinkler device that is motion activated. You put it on the end of your hose and you turn the hose on and motion, this thing will whip around and send out this nice big burst of water. And it mm-hmm. surprised a few mailmen along the way, but um, <laughs> dogs, dogs get the idea pretty quickly. It even works against deer. Uh, obviously, during freezing weather, it's not going to be as good. But I wouldn't worry too much about hosing down the dog's owner if the dog's owner is allowing their dog to do this thing in your that's yard. Right. But that's, you know, there. there's not really, there's some products that are stinky things. You can buy something. There's actually a good dog and cat repellent uh, by, uh, oh, golly, who are the people that make the... Uh, uh, really stinky deer repellents, but um, mm. I, I I like this little thing, and and again uh, they they call it a lawn scarecrow or something like that, and uh, but it's very effective, and it you know it just gives one or two nice big blasts of water. It's not anything that's going to run up your water bill or anything like that, but uh, it will tend to keep unwanted creatures two legged and four legged away from the area. Do you know where to get something like that? You're probably going to get it online. A uh, big okay, hardware okay. store may have it, but um, okay. yeah, we um, the we use we actually used to sell them, but the company that was supplying them, I think, decided that they were gonna get away from doing any wholesaling, and they just went strictly online with it. But uh, you might call your local hardware store, but other than that, I'd go online and look. And uh, the the, okay. the the repellent I was talking about is Liquid Fence is the name of it, but you're not looking for the deer liquid form. Fence. You're looking for their okay. Liquid Fence dog and cat repellent. But, you know, I, okay. I, again, that's one option. <laughs> but I, I, you might even okay. get a little entertainment out of the scarecrow. Okay. Thank you so much. You have a great weekend. Yeah, I appreciate it, Lou. You have a one as well. Thank you. All right, jumping around a bit to keep them in order, but it's Shirley and Mimi and Barrett and James and Shirley's first. Good morning, Shirley. Good morning. Good morning. I'm wondering if it's too late to put plant bulbs. Depends on what kind of bulbs and whether or not they're pre-chilled. What kind of bulbs are you looking at? I've got Irish daffodils, um, maybe more of the same. I would certainly go ahead and and plant them. Uh, it's not practical to try to store them by this time or by next fall. The bulbs would have dehydrated to the point that uh-huh. probably would be, you know, not worthwhile at all. I'm sure you'll be fine with your uh, iris. Now, are these the German iris or Dutch iris? What kind of iris? Now, why would you ask me that? <laughs> Reticulata. Okay. Um, you know, the the issue is that they won't have as much time to get their roots established before they mm-hmm. come up and try to bloom. But um, chances are we're going to have an extended period of good, cool weather. So uh, plant them today. 
uh, I would most definitely encourage you to do that. Just, you know, don't follow the instructions that came with them. I always yeah. plant bulbs by putting about as much dirt over the top of the bulb as the bulb is tall. If you read, and, you know, if these would come from anywhere up north, they're going to tell you to plant them 8 or 10 inches deep or something like that. No, they'd never come up. But just about as, as about the height of the bulbs, they should be about that far below the surface of the ground, and I plant them today. You, They should come up. They should flower. They should grow. Just don't be surprised if the blooms don't last as long as they will okay. in coming years. Great. Thank you so much. You are certainly welcome. Thanks for the call. Right. <laughs> Bye. All right. Uh, next up is Mimi. So let me hit that button. Good morning, Mimi. Good morning, Bob. Good it's morning. Minnie. Yes, ma'am. I am calling because we have a problem with our next-door neighbor. We had a 25-foot-tall natural hedge separating our property, but we had it cut down back in August because I wanted to plant uh, Texas sage. Okay. Well, it wasn't three days later when somebody came in with machinery and tore up the front yard and left a pile of dirt and the rocks. Everything is still laying there, and this is since August. My Texas sage is in there, but it's not growing as fast as I wanted to, just to keep us from having to look at this torn-up front yard. Mm-hmm. Can you recommend something that I can do that gives them a growth bird and, you know, and helps us create a wall again? Well, Texas sage doesn't grow as quickly as some things, but it, uh, depending on the variety that you got, it should put on at least a foot to 18 inches of growth. I just look for a good organic fertilizer. Medina makes one called Growing Green. Nature's mm-hmm. Creation makes one called Premium Lawn Food. Maestro Grow makes one called Texas Tea. Any of those good organic fertilizers, I would put down the dry product. And uh, it's going to last for three or four months. But if you want to follow that up, put down your dry product now, and then in a couple of weeks, follow it up with a little bit of liquid uh, organic fertilizer. Has and, to grow. Yeah, has to grow would be fine. Has to grow plant. And do that every couple of weeks. That's going to mm-hmm. maximize your growth. Now, this is not going to be jacking the beanstalk. It's mm-hmm. not going to be eight feet tall three days from now. But uh, it's we're just moving into the period of time when most shrubs put on their spring growth, when they'll do more growing in the next two to three months than they will the rest of the year. So your timing would be perfect to get your fertilizer out now because Mm -hmm. we're just about to go into the, you know, into the prime growing season. But Mm -hmm. uh, that would be the best I could suggest there. Now, if you had a fence, if you had something like that, I'd tell you to plant Confederate jasmine because that stuff can grow, you know, 10 feet a year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But since you like the Texas sage, the Sinisa, and since you've gotten them planted, just, uh, mm-hmm. you know, water them thoroughly whenever the soil is dry and knuckle deep and uh, fertilize them. Like I say, I put on the dry fertilizer this afternoon mm-hmm. in a couple like of weeks. Rose Glow? Rose Glow is just fine. Mm-hmm. Is uh, okay. That's another Maestro product. Uh, Texas tea, I think, is actually a little better than Rose Glow. You know, for getting shrubbery growth, but um, uh, if you have rose glow, use it. Mm-hmm. And then another question I have is, what 
Can you tell me about the metabolus rose? I think it's <laughs> called metabolus. Yeah, yeah, metabolus rose, also known as butterfly rose. Mm-hmm. It's a fabulous plant. Like all roses, it wants to grow in the sun. It mm-hmm. makes a very big plant. It'll grow six, seven feet tall and ten feet across. But uh, it's very easily grown. The blooms change color over a three-day period, Mm -hmm. um, which is where the name Mutabilis comes from. Mm -hmm. Um, It's like they mutate, but that's not the case. They're just changing color. But it's a wonderful rose, but it does get quite large, and it has Mm -hmm. plenty of thorns. But uh, I love it if you have room for it. it's, It's a great hedge rose. Well, I'm thinking about tearing out um, Texas Sage and putting Metabolus <laughs> Roses in there. <laughs> That's your choice, Mimi, but no, okay. uh, uh, Metabolus Rose is definitely going to grow faster, and uh-huh. it's going to bloom more consistently. The Texas mm-hmm. Sage blooms beautifully after a rain, but uh, Metabolus Butterfly Rose, uh, it can be in bloom six, eight, ten months out of the year. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, But now remember, it's going to get quite wide. It's going to take up you know, a substantial amount of space because mm-hmm. even if you trimmed it up, it's still going to want to be five or six feet wide, and it would love yeah. to be wider than that. But uh, it's an incredibly gorgeous rose. It's I've got some in my yard that I water it every couple of months, whether it needs it or not. It just mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. They just take no care once they're established, and they reward you with beautiful flowers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, that gives me something to think about. Well, you think and you enjoy that next cup of coffee and have a wonderful weekend and call me when I can help you again. Thank you, Bob. You're welcome, Amy. Thank you. All right. It's going to be Barrett and James and Chris and Barrett's up first. Good morning, Barrett. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Uh, I was, I had called to talk to your screener and, and he shot me through to you. I was just trying to see if, uh, we could get in touch with Roger and try to help him out a little bit. That first call, right? Caller that you had. You're right. Yeah. Um, I tell you, we don't. You know, we don't store numbers or things like that. But uh, I'll tell my engineer in there that if Roger wants to call back and leave his number. And then you can call back a little later and check in with Don and see if Roger's done. So it's kind of thing I just don't do over the air because I, I don't believe in giving out people's phone numbers because there are too many sure. people not as kind as you that are that are out there. So, uh, uh, yeah, Roger, if you're listening out there and you want to call in and give Don your number and, uh, um, yeah, give give a call back in a while. And uh, you're you're mighty kind and obviously a, a very good person and want to help out somebody like that. Oh. Well, okay. Well, I'll call back after a while, and hopefully he, he'll he'll uh, call back and leave his number. That sounds and, good. I sure do thank appreciate you so it, much. Thank you, sir. Yes, sir. Bye-bye. Goodbye. All right. Uh, let's see here. Next up is uh, James. Well, good morning, James. Morning, Bob. How you doing? Well, I'm doing very well. You're you're a little later than you frequently call in. You you either got to sleep in a little bit or you've been busy. Yeah, I got up earlier and. Put a bunch of logs on this stove, and man, I was snoozing. Boy. It's that kind of morning. Yes, sir. Were you in the 30s this morning up at your place? Yes, sir. Yeah, it was about 38 when I left home this morning. Er, um, the reason I'm calling is uh, I've got a T5 light above that cold frame in the greenhouse I told you about yeah. uh, last week. And uh, I was wondering if I... Uh, 
put some of that mylar uh, on those inside uh, uh, walls if that's going to mess up the uh, insulation value and uh, is it really going to help with the the reflectivity of the of the light you know it's not going to mess up the the insulative quality so to speak in fact it may even increase uh, because you know what what the thing that insulates is air and uh, anything creates even a small dead airspace is what's going to increase your insulative quality so to speak but um i don't know it's uh i i don't know whether you would get enough reflectivity so to speak technically theoretically it should help because you know the underside of the leaf has chloroplast just like the top of the leaf does just not as many and they're arranged a little bit differently so it'd be an interesting interesting experiment to do uh um you know side or even on the <laughs> even on the surface of the soil if you you had anything that could reflect back but um uh in theory it should work in reality i don't know i've never tried it well, we've got a foam board foam board down on the uh on the ground it's uh-huh. got a really shiny uh surface yeah yeah, and that's going to reflect. I mean, any anybody's ever been out fishing on a sunny day, even if you got a big hat on, you know, you can get sunburn just from the light reflecting off the water. And uh, with your, you know, T5 light up there, there's no reason that uh, the beneficial wavelengths of light will be reflected just like the, you know, hot wavelengths of light. So in theory, it ought to work very well. Well, we're going to keep those tomatoes coming. There's a lot of little old ladies out there. That are <laughs> and we've had a lot of cloudy days, so a little bit of supplemental light certainly not going to hurt anything. Yeah, I, yes, yeah it's, uh, I, you know, it, it's going to be one of those tough years to call uh, when to plant them because, you know, yeah. we have those years that we just, I mean, we could have seen our last freeze, but, we could also have more than one bounce of freezing weather. And the thing about tomatoes is they're pretty cheap, and uh, I don't know that I'd plant my good grafted tomatoes too early, but, uh, you know, some of your more common varieties, uh, sometimes it's worth gambling a little bit. You get the first tomatoes in town that way. We're shooting for the middle of February for yeah. the hoop house tomatoes, but, uh, you know, just depending on what happens. Um, I got another question for you. I wanted to put uh, rice holes down around my cilantro that's coming up. I got a pretty good, well, two fifty-foot rows mm-hmm. to keep them nice and clean when the you know when the rains come. But I couldn't find rice holes. Is, yeah. What's the next thing? Is uh, that uh, those wood chips that the horsey people use, or you know, it, it's it's a tough call. Uh, rice holes are just hard to replace, and there's just so little rice being grown over around Houston now that, um, I don't know, somebody out there may be, may be bringing them in from somewhere else. But as far as a different product, um, core would probably, core chips would probably work. This, you know, coconut husk, um, wood chips, uh, I would want to be sure that it was good, clean wood. You know, you when you when you get stuff from the brush dump or whatever, you may have ground up treated wood and everything else in there. But if you've got a yeah, if you've got uh, even uh, not too expensive, uh, 
you can buy bagged cedar chips. I think Cedarside is uh, one of the brands you find out there, and that should really cut down on that splash. And um, what do you think about Bob? What do you think about those uh, those bags of uh, uh, pine? White pine that uh, the horsey people use. That was my second choice. I I think that pine chips or pine straw, either one, I wouldn't be working it into the ground, but as a, on the surface, it ought to be a good mulch, and it ought to work perfectly. Okay. You made up my mind for me. Well, then you get back with me and let me know how it works. I think those uh, cedar shavings and things they use for stable bedding probably would work as well. Yeah, I think a good farm and ranch store is probably going to be your your best bet there, James. But I I don't think there's anything wrong with with those pine shavings. I think they'd be perfect. Well, we've got a feed store down here in the, the little town that brings that in by the pallet. Okay. Well, go for it. Not a problem getting it. Okay, thanks for answering my questions this morning, Bob. You know, it's always a pleasure. You get out and have a have a good uh, weekend, James, and I know we'll talk again sometime soon. All right, back to the phone lines. It's going to be Chris and Shannon and Kat, and then it'll probably be time for Howard Garrett. Good morning, Chris. Good morning, everybody. All those commercials remind me of three things. One, capitalism. Two, back in the days when I used to spin a platter, put a long song on, run outside, or go to the bathroom, because <laughs> yep. you had enough time. There you go. <laughs> number two. Yep, number two. It is 34 degrees in the Brook Hollow area uh-huh. right now, if someone asks for the temperature. And number three, grapes. The best time to plant them were five years ago. What's a good variety for Brook Hollow area? I... It'll be in the sun all the time. Yeah, my my favorite will be Champanelle. Champanelle is a grape that is great as a table grape. It's great as a wine grape. It is not seedless, but uh, it's a good big grape. It's easy to eat and uh, very, very productive. I think it's probably the single best grape for this area. My second best grape would be one that's called Black Spanish, also known by its French name of Lenoir. But, uh, if, yeah, if, I got that. Yeah, I, uh, Champanelle is one I'd be planting. When do you get the grapes in? Normally about February 15th. Okay, good. I'll see you then. I'll look forward to it. And have a great day in the meantime. And let me get Shannon in here next. Good morning, Shannon. Good morning, sir. Morning. We're trying to, we took care of a ranch, and we're trying to keep everything organic because we have bees out there. Yeah. I have been taking your advice and mowing those prairie cone flowers down. But it seems like they want to do just like the thistle. The lower you, the more you mow them, and the lower they get, they still bloom. Uh, they are an issue, but I can tell you the herbicides don't work very well on them either. And uh, it's funny, I was we had a meeting of uh, one of the committees on the land trust that I had, and we were talking about that, and uh, um, had couple of friends that said that they mowed religiously and after six years they pretty much got rid of them but they are tough but i can tell you the poisons don't work very well on them either if um do you run cattle what kind of uh do you, what kind of stock do you run if any yes on, on our on our easement there uh there is cattle on one part that we uh mow but on on the main ranch it's just deer okay 
Um, yeah, anything that you can do. Yeah, we all have plenty of wild hogs, unfortunately. But anything you can do to encourage the native grasses, which is, uh, you know, rotational grazing in the case of the cattle. But uh, you may want to talk to Douglas King. You may want to get an overseed with, uh, you know, a little more of one of the native grasses. I think that that helps with choking them out but i think the timing is also important and uh it's right now i'd be i'd be mowing down all the old dead frozen ones there but when they get about when they get to the point that they are just about to form the seed heads i think that's the most important time to shred them down and um you know hopefully we're going to go back into a little bit wetter period and when that happens, your native grasses have a chance, a much better chance of dominating them. But uh, I just don't think there's really much of anything that is going to kill them out. It's more of do everything you can to support the native grass to try to choke them out. Understood. Understood. Well, I appreciate it. I thought maybe there was something I was doing wrong or something. If I mold, you know what else? <laughs> I, uh, I I'm just like you. Believe me, if I find a better way, I uh, you know I will let you know. I will tell you on uh, the exclosures that I've created with uh, help and advice from my friends in Parks and Wildlife. Uh, my native grasses, where I've totally excluded the deer and the cattle, uh, my native grasses have totally choked the coneflowers out over about. Uh, um, oh, I guess it's been about four years now, and I have almost none that. You know, botanical name on that stuff is rubidita, if you ever want to look it up. But on the areas where I kept out the deer and the cattle, uh, everything I've got out there is the blue skin, the curly mesquite, and they've pretty much totally choked the coneflowers out. So um, just, but, you know, it's it's just an issue with deer and cows. And, yeah, and there, nothing eats those things. I know. Nothing. Except I a mean, few caterpillars. I, I, I see that when it gets dry on the ranch that even the thistle, the cows will eat the outside of the thistles and they yep. eat the top of the thistles. They won't eat the stem, but nothing touches those coneflowers. Uh, that's been my experience. Uh, <laughs> I, I believe me, you'll be, this will be the first place you'll hear it. If I come up with anything that works better and we've got a lot of intelligent ranchers out there listening. If anybody else has found a solution, maybe they'll call in and tell us about it. Janet. Well, I sure appreciate the information. You have a wonderful day. Sir. You do the same, Shannon. Thank you, sir. Thank bye. you, sir. Ah, bye-bye. All right. Let's finish up the hour with Kat. Good morning, Kat. Good morning, Dr. Bob. How are you? I'm doing very well. Looking forward to a beautiful weekend out there. Just uh, a little chilly. Yeah, me too. Got got a couple of questions. I live on northwest San Antonio off of uh, uh, Braun in 1604, and I've got a peach tree in the backyard uh-huh. and it's just it's just like exploded this year but it's bloom it's been blooming for like two weeks mm-hmm. um which is great because it's attracting all kinds of bees which right I, which i love but i mean i've never seen it bloom this early before is that because of the warm january well it's be no believe it or not it's the opposite um <laughs> it's peach trees have to accumulate a certain amount of chill hours and that's the number of hours that it's been below 45 degrees and through the fall and even up to this point we in a peach trees vision we've had a fairly cold winter it just hasn't been severe cold we've had a lot of weather down in the 40s but just not much freezing weather and but 
once a peach tree reaches its chilling hour minimum, which is what it's called, then when we have uh, 10 days or so of warm weather, then it pops out and blooms. So early on it met its chilling requirement. Then we've gotten into this warm period, and that's why you've got all your flowers now. And let's just pray we don't get a hard freeze. Okay, and um, how long do you think they will bloom for? Um, if they've been in bloom I mean, two this weeks, year's been like nothing else. I've yeah. never, it, I mean, it's just growing. If it if it stays beautiful. stays cool, you're probably looking at blooms for the next uh, week or ten days at least. Okay, and my second question is: I've been here for over thirty years, and I have a uh, oh gosh, crepe myrtle in the front yard, mm-hmm. and it, it's it's never grown. Never, and there was hack, like a hackberry in the middle of it, which you know I cut yep. back and then tried to seal it, but it 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 has never grown. Well, what expose you know? expose the root flare because virtually every crepe myrtle planted is buried too deeply in the pot before you get it, and then the problem just gets worse. Uh, is it in full sun? It's in full west okay. sun. Well, if you've been listening very long, you know that uh, this is the time in uh, Saturday mornings that we take the time to visit with uh, just one of the best gardeners around, Mr. Howard Garrett, the Dirt Doctor. We'll save about the last 30 minutes of the show for more calls. And, of course, we do this again tomorrow morning from 8 till 11 on plants. But right now, it's always great pleasure to punch that button down there and say good morning, Howard Garrett. Good morning. How's everybody? Everybody, I think, is enjoying uh, a return to a little bit cooler weather and an absolutely beautiful weekend. We had frost on the pumpkin this morning. Yeah. uh, Frost on the roof, and the golf course has a frost delay, so it's a little chilly out there. (laughs) Nothing wrong with that, though. I think we needed to slow things down just a little bit, but uh, I tell you, it's it's been a real interesting year, but... uh, in between a uh, bit of rain here and there, we have sure had a stretch of beautiful weather. Yeah, I think so, too. I'm going to try to finally get some gardening done that I've been uh, running into scheduling problems getting done. It's kind of nice to work out there. I did the, uh, I don't know if I told you, I think I did, I, my big Japanese maple that I've had for 40-something years in, in pots was mm-hmm. really looking bad toward the end of the growing season and i pulled it out had some guys help me <clears throat> tip the pot over and pull it out and i completely bare rooted it and i got a bunch of photographs of it that we'll put on the website and all but it was amazing the uh the original ball of uh burlap was in the center of the roots and the roots uh-huh. that were healthy at all had grown over the top of it and grown outside and it had finally you know gotten in gotten itself in trouble and it took me about five hours wow. to get all that burlap out because it had, you know, grown into the roots and several places the roots had grown into it. It was the white synthetic. <laughs> okay, burlap. I was going to say the old jute burlap tends to rot away, but that well, that's just the proof of not only the fabric they use, but uh, these guys in the past that have tied up the root balls with that polypropylene twine. It just doesn't go away. It was in there, too. But I'll tell you something that I ran into. uh, I got the information from the first time I ran into it. It was a contractor in Fort Worth who uh, used to communicate with me. I haven't heard from him in a long time, so I don't know if he's retired or what. But he called me one day, and he said that they had moved some big crepe myrtles, Mm -hmm. and they had 
uncovered them, and one of the balls had uh, crumbled apart, and he found burlap still in perfect condition. These were big uh, Kramer's been there a long time. Wow. And uh, it, it dawned on me at that point, that's why I recommend taking all the burlap off of uh, ball and burlap plants when they're planted now. I think that below about eight inches in the soil, mm-hmm. there's not enough oxygen for the burlap to rot. I guess that would be a good possibility. He Plus, that, He said under the ball, he said that the burlap was in perfect condition, hadn't even started to rot yet. Wow. And I've seen that since, uh, uh-huh. too. And, I started taking the uh, burlap off my so it's going to be it's going to be touch and go by my tree whether it makes it or not it really had gotten uh, in pretty pretty bad shape but we'll uh, we'll keep everybody posted and showing this to people I think will get uh, get folks attention because it shows what a what a terrible thing it is I unfortunately I think there's still some tree growers out there that are using this stuff they think that it's beneficial because it lasts longer mm-hmm. you know, when they have the trees and then it'll rot later but it sure won't you know that's that's just so interesting had had the tree rooted through the pot and down to the ground underneath it or was it no, still it hadn't gone through the burlap at all it had just wow. uh, gone through the top and i you know I, it was my mistake years ago when i planted it but i don't remember seeing that that it was there so it was in a situation in a container where that burlap was inside mm-hmm. enough to where I didn't see it and I only saw it years later when I started dramatically exposing the flare taking yep. the soil off yep. the top and I ran into it and I started tearing it off you know as much as I could and I knew that it was probably a bigger problem than than it looked like and finally I you know I waited probably too late to do it but mm-hmm. I finally took it all completely off and it literally took me about five hours to get it all out of there what 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 do you think triggered the fact that the tree started declining because it had put up with that for several years what was it that uh uh that suddenly caused the decline in health was it just the uh you know the constriction the reduction in the roots just not being able to grow what do you think changed well, it had, like I said, it had cut into the root system in several places. I mean, uh-huh. this plastic stuff was, you know, embedded in, in roots in quite a few places. And I guess that just got worse and worse over the years. But it may also have to do with all the heavy rain we had last fall sure. and going into the year yeah. and the soil staying so wet. And that combination of stresses on the tree might be what, what pushed it there. So... We'll see. I'm, uh, I've set it real uh, high, even higher than it than it was, and it's got real dramatic uh, uh, flare now. The start of the roots at the uh, top, and well, you know, there's there's this really unique formula out there that can be used as a drench or a foliar spray called garret juice you may have heard of it and uh no, it, I haven't, but I'll try that. <laughs> it it seems to have the capacity to sometimes revive things that even look like they're in pretty bad shape uh either That's actually one of the things i was going to do to, uh, today i got i ran out of potting soil when i was uh-huh. doing the transplanting and washing it washing all the roots completely clean and uh, i got to finish finish the potting soil and drench it real well and i'm going to keep the uh, top of the plant 
uh, saturated by sprinkling it, hosing it down on a regular basis, mm-hmm. like you recommend as well. Well, and and I again, I I think Garage Juice works extremely well as a foliar spray, and I would not be. I don't think there'd be any problem with using it fairly frequently when you're trying to bring something out of shock like that. Um, do you do you think there are any negatives to it? No, I, I would dilute it, mm-hmm. kind of like we we helped a. Uh, blueberry and blackberry grower in, in Kansas go organic some years ago. And one of the things I think he had said tremendous success, I think one of the things that worked so well was he made his own version of Garrett juice, pretty much you know the formula that we recommend, added mycorrhizae to it and the mm-hmm. whole deal. So it came up to being about like the Garrett juice pro. Uh-huh. And he used it every time he watered, but he diluted it down to below, uh, what, a 50% normal mixture would be so it mm-hmm. went on in a very diluted way every time that that he uh, watered the other thing about the blueberries and i think it's good for people to know I, you and i both get people trying to grow blueberries every year in soil <laughs> that is pretty tough and yep. water that's pretty tough but if you do the bed preparation that we recommend the real good quality compost and organic fertilizers and the rock minerals, lava sand and azomite being my favorite too, and then the sugars, the two sugars that are the best are dry molasses and uh, and cornmeal because it functions like a sugar and really, right. really use a little bit more of those ingredients in the existing soil uh, and build up real nice raised beds. I think, and, and then have some garret juice or at least some apple cider vinegar going in the water to mm-hmm. balance out the water. I think you can grow blueberries or anything else. Well, and and people get so carried away with pH, and uh, I tell people all the time, you're not really going to change your soil pH, and I don't think this pH is that critical. Like you say, you knock it down a little bit uh, with your apple cider vinegar, but if you've got decomposing organic material or really any organic material in the soil even the humates that don't decompose so quickly you've got natural humic and fulvic acids and uh i think i think watching your ph is almost as much a waste of time as thinking that you have to have you know watching the numbers on a fertilizer bag to me they're just irrelevant irrelevant anymore and uh, i kind of think all this talk about ph is the same way well i agree i've been saying pretty much that all along, and something happened recently that makes pushes me even uh, further that way. Uh, one of my listeners uh, sent a, a, a video for me to listen to, and sometimes I don't have time to do that. I get a yeah. lot of things from a lot of different people, but this one caught my attention, and it was about uh, SAP tests. Mm-hmm. Using that instead of tissue samples or, or, or soil tests, and I listened to the thing. It was really pretty fascinating. It was it was very persuasive that using the sap, testing the sap in a plant, is a more effective way to see what's going on as far as available nutrients, bioavailable mm-hmm. nutrients in the plant than any other testing system. And one of the things it talked about was that you can see you need to test the tip growth, uh-huh. and you need to test the root tissue and the and the lower leaves and, uh, you know, different parts of the plant, you're going to see different concentrations of major nutrients and trace minerals at different places. And if the the lower leaves sap contains a nice balance of, you know, 
plenty of availability mm-hmm. of the major nutrients and everything, then you're in real good shape. If just the tip growth shows good stuff, that's why the lower leaves will sometimes, you know, like on a tomato, get sure. in trouble first. Yeah. Same thing. And, and that all makes a heck of a lot of sense. But it's a lot of trouble to do this sap testing stuff, and there's not very many people that do it, and it's very expensive. And but what hit me on it was this. If you look, I'm, I'm about to get at the point where I don't recommend testing at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and here's why. You know, there's three different ways to do soil testing. There's exchange capacity. There's the acid testing, which is worthless, that A&M and people like that do. Right. And and then there's the carbon dioxide extraction uh, testing. You have those three. And then you also have tissue sample testing. Mm-hmm. And you have now this sap testing. Five different tests you could do. Uh-huh. And I guarantee you they'll all come up with different answers. Oh, yeah. yeah. Recommendations. So how much good is any of that? And and this guy even admitted when he was doing this video, he even admitted, somebody asked a question in his seminar, it was a tape seminar that he was doing. Somebody asked him, well, if you have really super healthy soil, biological activity in the soil, do you, it, will there usually or ever be an imbalance and a chemistry problem, fertility problem for the plant? And his answer was no. Mm-hmm. If the soil is really super healthy, it's going to be getting what it needs. That's interesting. And with the sap testing, do they use a refractometer like they do for bricks, or how? What what kind of test? Do you have any idea how or what well, he was? He doesn't use a refractometer because he kind of badmouthed the refractometer and really? saying that yeah, because all that's giving you the is the sugar yeah. in the uh, in the leaves and in the patio, and he wanted the sap in different parts. You know uh-huh. of the uh, of the plant, so it's. I went through it pretty pretty fast. I'll send you a copy of it to listen to. It'd be interesting for you to okay. go through it, whether we ever use it or not. I think it's just a, another good angle mm-hmm. at understanding all the stuff that we do. But it really, I think what it does is it really gives us another great statement about how well what we recommend works and why it works <laughs> yep if uh, you know and i've told i've been kind of cavalier about this forever because of all the soil testing people you know disagree with each other and everybody says theirs is the only way to go and all that kind of thing yeah and and um and they recommend and this was another part of it a lot of those people that do those testing things will see a deficiency in boron and sulfur and mm-hmm. zinc and things like that, and they'll recommend putting out some products I don't recommend, like right. copper sulfate and, yeah. and copper products in general and other things that are single-element mm-hmm. uh, tools. Yeah. Boy, putting out a single-element tool, you can make a mess in a hurry. You can create a lot bigger problem than you had to begin with. Oh, so, yeah, the toxicity well, we of some of these things. The organic yeah fertilizers and the and the liquids and everything we're, we're putting out trace minerals you know trace amounts mm-hmm. of those trace minerals with everything we ever put out and and they're going to become a, a bioavailable because of mycorrhizal fungus and beneficial bacteria and protozoa and all the things that we're concentrating on stimulating 
putting out specific microbes might not even be all that smart. Putting out the food for them probably works uh, better and is more cost effective. It certainly makes sense to me. It's, uh, uh, but like you say, uh, the health of the plant is just your best overall indicator, and uh, that's that's kind of what I found when I had some time in Atlanta and I was researching a little bit, reading a little bit more about bricks was what I was reading about at this point, trying to understand it better. But it brought out exactly the same thing, that when your nutrient levels and when your sugar levels are at an optimum level in the plant, just everything goes so well. Insects stop identifying it as a food source and tend to be less of a problem. But uh, um, I tell you, you sure can't get there without the organic program. You will never, ever obtain that level of optimum health. You may see giant growth and things like that, but you I don't think you will ever have a healthy plant on a, a program with synthetic fertilizers and, and chemicals. I don't think you can because there's no carbon involved in what those amendments are. Yeah. Well, and this, there's usually a very poor uh, balance of trace minerals in the synthetic fertilizers, too. Those are the two main things. Malcolm talked about this quite a bit, uh, especially toward the end there, uh, and and had a great idea. Nobody's ever really uh, capitalized on it too much, but you you can take a, a ammonium a, a, a what's the basic uh, nitrogen product that a lot of people use. I'm drawing a blank on that. Oh yeah, ammonium anyway. sulfate probably. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's not the one I was thinking of. But anyway, a, a clean source of nitrogen of some kind, and add uh, a complex to it that's real high in carbon. Mm-hmm. You know, to that synthetic fertilizer that's mostly nitrogen, and you can come up with something that's uh, that, that's you know very useful. Mm-hmm. But none of the synthetic fertilizer people recommend, or very few of them recommend any any carbon being added to the uh, applications. Right, right. It's, you know, it, I just, <laughs> the, the more we learn, I think the more we confirm what our observations have been over a long period of time. And uh, I, I think the other thing, too, I think when we increase carbon levels in whatever form that carbon is in, um, we're stimulating things like mycorrhizal fungi that I think have just, really come to the forefront as being important in ways that we never even understood and that always to me raises an interesting question well what about those those plants that don't form an association with mycorrhizal fungi how are they accomplishing the same thing so uh, I, I love finding answers but it seems like every answer i find raises more questions than i have answers to well, I think I guess it's a little bit lazy and maybe a little bit cavalier, but it seems to me like you can do this uh, general approach that we talk about, use mm-hmm. basically the same things on any kind of soil there is, and raise that biological activity and the health, and it works for most mm-hmm. people, and it's very cost-effective, and it's not complicated. He, this guy with the sap thing, I mean, he get, he gets into. I'm sure he's really smart and knows what he's talking about, and then this works if you pay. You know, they're big fees for consulting and, and doing the tests and all that kind of thing. But there was a lot of math involved. <laughs> I mean, just, a, you know, a lot of detail. And, uh, you know, we put out the stuff that we put out and, and just let nature take care of all right. that going zone in the ground. 
Well, so. uh, urea is the okay. Yeah, urea. I was trying to think. Yeah. And, and by the way, as you know, urea actually has a little bit of carbon, not very much, mm-hmm. but but using a real clean uh, synthetic fertilizer and adding a good uh, trace mineral package, and uh, if it was associated with a carbon, I think that would work really beautifully. And by the way, that uh, that product that you. Uh, t- Gave me some samples out from Medina. That yeah. looks really good. The uh, yeah. really fine textured humate. Uh, humate. I think that's going to be a great tool to use in the detox program and for people that need to clean up the uh, soil. Well, and it's fine enough that you can put it through a sprayer. It goes into yeah. uh, suspension exactly. to the point, and uh, it's. Uh, uh, yeah, I think that's going to be really good. I hope Stuart will have. You know, time to micronize uh, some of the charcoals and things for us too to play with. But uh, I'm I'm seeing something interesting, and you'll see this later this spring when we get you down for seminar and art and things like that. But I have relocated uh, some of my vegetable gardening up closer to the house. Just um, getting tired of fighting some of the varmints and things, and it's amazing moving into in effect a clean new environment and. I'm basically just rebuilding the soil with rock minerals and things like that. But it's going to be interesting. Thus far, I have seen absolutely zero insect problems. And I've, gosh, I'm harvesting gorgeous uh, broccoli and kale. My spinach is just growing like mad and artichokes. And granted, I haven't planted a lot of, uh, a lot of different things yet. I haven't gotten into the summer crops at all. But I have yet to see one aphid, one cabbage looper, and, you know, down in my bigger garden down there, I don't care what I do, I'm always going to have a few things show up that I control naturally and all. But just in this new clean environment, uh, just there have been absolutely zero pests. And I I wonder how some of the different things we fight on an ongoing basis, like aphids and cabbage loopers, which, of course, aphids are, are a sign of stress. But um, exactly where they're overwintering, exactly where they're sticking around, where those first ones come from and on things like my snow peas and granted when it starts getting hot they start fading but uh, if if i can avoid having some of the things that go on them even as they get a little bit heat stress it's gonna be real interesting to see you know one of the uh things that we gardeners do even the organic people we tend to grow things in rows where we have masses of the same thing mm-hmm. here and and a different crop here and a different crop here. Even if we're changing them around and doing crop rotation, we're still having masses of the same thing. There was a Japanese fellow that was an uh, organic teacher. His name was Fukuoka, and he uh, he'd been gone a long time, but he wrote a little book called The Last Straw Re- Rebellion or something like that. I remember that, yeah. And he taught people in Japan how to do uh, growing in a way that would maybe kind of explain what you're seeing there. He he had multi-crops uh-huh. growing together. He didn't have rows and masses of stuff. He he grew everything in a big mix, and including rice. And by the way, he grew rice on, on uh, land. He didn't grow it in water. Interesting. And he, he did a lot of stuff, you know, just having... Uh, mixed planting all the different crops and everything mixed and growing together and and he had tremendous uh, success he had young people come and live with him and you know interns and work on the place but if you haven't read that little book it's called the last i think it's the last straw rebellion i, I think that rings a bell 
Are something you? like that. Real small book, but it's uh, it's worth reading for everybody out there. We've got it on our website uh, under books that I recommend. So. You know, you've just given me a great idea for something to try in my spring garden because I'm I'm totally guilty of what you say. I've got a row of tomatoes. I've got a row of peppers. I've got a row of eggplant. Yep. Sure. But all those things, the water requirements are pretty much the same on all of those. And that's the only reason I would you know, really think of grouping things together would just be based on how often they need water. But I'll have the, the perfect opportunity to, to kind of mix things up and have a row that's a mixed planting of, uh, say, tomatoes and eggplant and peppers. And, um, you know, same thing on beans and some other things. That that sounds like a, a very easy-to-do experiment, something that'll be fun. I'm, I'm, I'm yep. going to make a note to do that this spring. Well, I'm, I'm behind on getting my late, you know, next round of stuff planted. I'll do the, the same. We'll just get a good experiment going here and see, see what we run into. You know who has kind of gotten into that a little bit of the coffee growers? You know, they're growing uh-huh. coffee under trees and stuff now, and, Growing it in, more, in less of an orchard situation and more of a natural way, so it it might work for all kinds of crops. Well, I'll tell you one thing right now, and just uh, I can't wait for you to see my my greenhouse and things down here. But I planted underneath. I've got some extraordinarily healthy artichoke plants, and I planted spinach underneath them. And my gosh, it's some of the prettiest spinach oh, I have cool. ever grown. And uh, my only problem is the artichokes are growing so well, they're shading the spinach. But uh, um, it's real interesting mixing it up like that. And it's been it's been a couple of things. It's really kind of given me a chance to harvest more edibles out of a smaller area. But I've sure seen some outstanding growth. And I wonder if the you know if the mixing things together has something to do with that. Lots it lots of things does. to think about. Yeah. Yeah, you might try transplanting some of the things too. That might be another thing we could do that we ha- we don't usually try is transplanting food crops when uh, the conditions change. Uh-huh. Well, we got more to talk about next week for sure, <laughs> as always. Well, I hope you have a wonderful week in the meantime. And uh, as always, it's just such a pleasure visiting on uh, Saturday mornings and. Uh, Give all your give all your family friends a big hug, two legged and four legged, and I'll sure look forward to talking soon. Hope to see you down there soon, Bob. Thanks. We'll look forward to it, Howard. Thank you, sir. Bye. All right, back to gardening. It looks like it should be Anna and Bill and Marchie and Richard and Anna got through first. Good morning, Anna. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, yes, it is a beautiful morning. Uh, the reason I'm calling this morning, it isn't about the plants. It's about my feet. Uh, okay. My, uh, my friend told me that uh, you can get some cornmeal to kind of uh, take care of the the ugly toenails. Well, the cornmeal grows a beneficial fungus, which is called trichoderma. Which will totally get rid of uh, uh, toenail fungus, given a little time to work. And certainly, boy, you'll never have athlete's foot if you occasionally, you know, give your feet a cornmeal soak. But um, <laughs> take, take it from a, a fellow who's several years old. Ugly toenails sometimes is just a, a factor of age. But as far as the uh, kind of abnormal discoloration and growth, uh, you know, caused by the uh, what we call toenail fungus the trichoderma will take care of that and the general treatment is just making not a paste but uh kind of a slurry of cornmeal and water let it sit for a few hours and then 
soak the foot or feet in it for about an hour a day for about a week, then take a couple of weeks off and then do the same thing again. And uh, you'll notice, I mean, it doesn't change areas that are already discolored or hardened, but your toenails just start pushing out good new growth, healthy tissue that gradually pushes the old bad stuff away. But it, you know, I I have a niece who is a a doctor down in Mexico, and I was talking to her about this, and she said, Uncle Bob said, we've been doing that for, you know, generations down here, especially in the Colonias, where medical care is at, at least or best it's uh uh certainly not up to the standard she said we've been using cornmeal to take care of uh, toe problems for you know generations so it's it's nothing new and breaking research or anything like that it's just going back to something that's worked you know for a long long time and it's interesting to me a lot of the people that ask me about it are the same doctors that are prescribing that medicine that can just kill your liver that uh you know, this what's the pharmaceutical remedy for toenail fungus and uh, doesn't work any better than the cornmeal does and has a lot of bad side effects. Well, I, I know that I, I looked at that stuff that you buy at the, at the drugstore, mm-hmm. and it, it does. It, it tells you, I mean, cautions you about, yeah. the, uh, you know, the, the side effects. So, I mean, you know, in my old age, all of a sudden, I'm getting real thick, uh, <laughs> <laughs> a real thick toenail. Yeah, that's, you know? uh, yeah, that's, well, as uh, Germans say, we get too soon old and too late smart. <laughs> but, no, it. But, you know, the home remedies are the best. I totally agree. I can't promise you it will take care of a lot of the thickening and toughening of toenails or and fingernails, too, that comes with age, but it'll sure take care of the toenail fungus, and uh, you'll never have athlete's foot, I can promise you that. Well, I suppose that that thickening of the toenails comes because of the fungus. And Probably once you so. start treating it, maybe the nail will grow out. I, I think that's anyway, very reasonable. I'm thinking, I'm hoping. Well, <laughs> okay, I'll hope along kind of, with you, and you call me uh, if no, you need more infor- of, uh, information you need. Of, what kind of... Uh, uh, Cornmeal? Uh-huh. Yeah, just whole ground cornmeal. You don't want the baking cornmeal because they've polished away a lot of the good stuff. But I think HEB calls it stone ground. I think Natural Grocers calls it just whole ground. But uh, uh-huh. uh, it's, you know, what we use it for in uh, many of the garden applications, we even use the corn chops you get at the feed store. Any good corn product like that. Oh, yeah, I can get it at the feed store? Oh, yeah. Oh, great. I'll, I'll stop by there. I have a place here real close by. Thank Very you good, so Anna. much. I appreciate your advice. Always a pleasure. Thank you for the call this morning. All right, next up is Bill. Good morning, Bill. Hey, Bob. Good morning. I got, good morning. I got a, I got a couple of questions, then I've got a, kind of a rant, but that's cool. Uh, uh, on the cornmeal, which must be cornmeal day, I'm not talking about for toes. I'm talking about for, for trees. Right. You... Uh, but yeah, I've got corn chops mm-hmm. for the for the hogs. You just put that in a a net bag and suspend it in a bucket of water. Oh, I wouldn't even bother with the net bag if you're going to spray it. Your net bag yeah. would make it easy to spray. But no, where you're just pouring it on, which is what we do to get the resistance to oak wilt and things like that. You're just gonna you're just gonna soak it in water, minimum of two hours, maximum forty eight hours. I tend to leave it overnight and then just dump that water around. Is all you need to do. Okay, okay, that's good. That's that's what I, I, that'd be a lot easier because man, I got twenty five oaks. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, and, you know, small trees, one one five-gallon bucket is enough. Big trees, you know, may take more. But uh, it's the science behind it. I, You know, as you know, if you've listened to me, I have recommended cornmeal for a long time, been openly criticized by the Forest Service and others as being a quack. But now the scientific evidence is mounting, um, and it, it creates something in the trees. It's referred to, depending on which research you look at, as either systemic acquired resistance or systemic induced resistance and they're finding that uh, it works against not only oak wilt but hypoxylin canker and virtually every fungal disease out there so uh, it's it's real interesting stuff and interestingly enough they're finding that cornmeal the trichoderma is not the only thing that helps it uh, biochar helps with this there are a couple of other products salicylic acid uh, the cornmeal just continues to be the cheapest and easiest one but uh, pretty good scientific evidence building up of how it works and and what all it does and the news is all good as far as i'm concerned uh, excellent uh, you had a call a while back about dogs apparently urinating in their yards. Right, right. I've got a pack of six dogs, and I walk all the time, and it depends on where they're at. But if you think it's domestic animals, i got news. There's possums, raccoons <laughs> doing that in your yard all day long. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, and it's just fertilizer. I, I don't. I don't know if it's. I, I guess if if you got a you know nine thousand dogs or something, it'd be a different story. But well, the know, it, it, the it, thing that, that yeah, the thing that's that happens with dogs. It, it I mean, it happens with deer, but not so much in others. Is just the dogs. You very well know with your pack. If one dog goes and pees on a tree, shall we say, everybody else has to go try to cover it up with the same scent. And while the urine from one dog is not going to cause a problem, when you got 23 dogs come down the street and everyone stops and has to hit the same tree, that can get to be a problem. So, yeah. I'm I'm, I'm sure. I I, I hear people get into altercations. I'm going, come on, man. It's not that life is too short. Well, but responsible dog, yeah, and responsible dog owners like you and me, we carry the poop bags and we pick up that. So, yeah, I I can see. I would be upset. Uh, of course, you know my house is half mile off the road, so it's not an issue. But uh, I, the solid waste, I I don't appreciate people to leave that behind. But you know, responsible people like us, we pick it up and and dispose of it properly. But yeah, it's it's a little overblown at times. Yes, I'm guess bad. Look what comes out of the south end of a cow. There you anyway. go, well, Bill. I appreciate it. You have a great weekend. Thank you, sir. Well, let's uh, finish up calls about gardening with uh, Margie and with Richard. Uh, Margie's first. Good morning, Margie. Good morning, Bob. I Good morning. I have a couple of questions to ask you. The first thing is uh, a friend of mine, she cut uh, some roses bushes. Okay. She gave me some pieces. How do I put them in water and then plant it on the ground? Well, roses, well, anything, if you root it in water... It forms a different kind of root, and then when you put it in the ground, it uh, you know all those roots have to die, and it starts over. Now you need to keep those cuttings moist, so you might want to put them in water for now. 
But um, there is a material you can get at any nursery. It's a white volcanic material called perlite, P-E-R-L-I-T-E. Or some growers use pure sand. There's also something called oasis cubes that uh, your professionals may use. But you're best to put your cuttings. And you don't want to have, ever want to have a real big cutting. You want to keep your cuttings down no more than about four or five inches in length. But rooting those in either good, clean, coarse sand or in perlite, you'll end up with a much stronger plant that will make the transition to soil much better. So I'd, I'd put them in water now just to keep them from dehydrating. But uh, to actually get them to take root, I like I say, I'd, I'd take a pot with a hole in the bottom, a clean pot. I'd fill that with either coarse sand or with perlite and keep that moist but that's where you want to put your cuttings to get uh, to get them to root better what about that lantana yeah it's exactly the same way everything i root i use perlite but uh, i know a lot of people that use coarse sand but uh, lantana roots extremely well in perlite it's p-e-r-l-i-t-e what about uh big to plant uh, seeds uh, like hot peppers, serrano, chilpiquil. Now, with those, I just use a real good potting soil, a real fine garden soil. But uh, I'll just use a good, uh, I don't especially like peat moss. I like compost-based. But uh, I use a real good compost-based potting soil for seed starting, and it works extremely well. Most seeds, I give them a brief soak in garret juice or even just a little apple cider vinegar, and it seems to speed up the sprouting on uh, things like peppers and tomatoes. But uh, I'll just use a real good soil, plant my seed, or I'll put my seed down and put maybe a quarter of an inch of soil on top of it, and I have very good success growing things from seed. And they give it? Uh, in Christmas, Panceras, too. What I do with that one? Do I give it a small pot or put it in the ground? Um, you know, it's easier to keep them watered in the ground than it is in a pot. But uh, if it gets real cold, they may freeze. They usually come back out. But uh, I would tend to plant them in the ground on the south side of the house, which where they'll get a little bit of protection from that north wind. But uh, you'll be surprised how big they'll grow. They'll make nice bushes, you know, four, five, six feet tall. But that's what I would do with them. Okay. I should appreciate those things. Thank you. Well, it's my pleasure. I appreciate the call. Thank you, Margie. Bye. All right. We'll finish up with calls with Richard. Good morning, Richard. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Hey, so I have a area in my yard that always gets these winter weeds, and it's not poannua. It's um, like this clump of it. Almost looks like winter rye, but it forms from a clump. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And I know it's been pretty cool this winter, so my uh, my Bermuda never did. I feel like go dormant. Sure. Uh, and it's probably, and I'm assuming it's because of all the compost and the soil I've built up um, <laughs> kind of keeps its temperature. Yeah. But uh, should I just not worry about that? I was going to try to spray them if there was any chance that I could prevent them from coming back next year. But You know, that that seed just blows in. It's called Texas winter grass. And um, I just mow it and mow it and mow it some more. And, um, I, you know, it, it can be a problem because it gets so thick. And if you let it get too tall, it's just it's a mess when you mow it. But uh, I don't want it to shade out the light. If my Bermuda, and my Bermuda's brown, but I live, you know, north of town where it's been substantially cooler. But uh, I would mow it and mow it fairly low on a regular basis. 
and uh, it'll die out as soon as it gets hot. But I, I, I don't like letting it get too tall. And if you do keep it mowed, you'll keep it from going to seed, and you will have less of it next year. But somehow, I don't know whether the birds bring it in or just blows in. It never seems You never seem to get it totally under control. Sure. Yeah, I figured if I tried to kill it, I would probably do more harm than good at this point. And when I mow it low, it looks green, good and good and green anyway. So I do it. Uh, from a distance, my front yard looks like a looks like a a beautiful botanical garden. And up, you get up close, you realize that's what it is: is that Texas winter grass. But uh, you know, it's it's putting carbon in the soil. It's absorbing the sun's energy and making more organic materials, storing all that energy and carbon products. So. Uh, I I think it's a good thing. I just try not to, like you say, not to let it get too terribly tall. Try to keep it from going to seed. And uh, my Bermuda, at least, comes back uh, just fine, you know, even though I've got a good deal of this out there. Well, thanks to you. You've helped me convince uh, myself of things aren't weeds or plants, and uh, it's just all a matter of our perspective. <laughs> uh, planted, uh, a weed is a plant in the wrong place. Exactly. One other question on an avocado tree, if you have sure. it. Sure, Absolutely. Have uh, I bought an avocado tree from you last year. It's doing really well. Um, and this year, it was a little bit more of a mature tree. Uh-huh. Um, and so it's barked up up to the graph point. It's starting to go above that now. But um, I feel like it's a couple years old already. Um, so I noticed, like, there's from one of the limbs, there's about five limbs um, total. But one of them has, some, uh, like, some pods. Uh-huh. Um, but only one of them does. So is that where there will eventually be avocados at this point in the year? Well, they actually, yeah, they actually bloom. You will see the flowers. The flowers get pollinated, and then you'll have avocados form. Uh, We'll just have to wait and see what develops. Sometimes it's hard to tell the difference in a leaf bud and a flower bud, but the fact that it is budding, and, and it's not unusual to have that happen on a grafted plant. It seems like sometimes... You know, one limb matures physiologically ahead of the others, but uh, uh, let's talk in two, three weeks and see what that turns into. I wouldn't be at all surprised if you don't have flowers and at least some avocados this year. Yeah, one is very distinctive. It is a pod, uh, uh-huh. but it is one branch. So I would assume by maybe next year, maybe all of them kind of come into maturity. That would uh, be my. Just have that one. That would be my expectation. Awesome. Looking forward to it. And a great plan, as always, from Shades of Green. So, Thank you, sir. Richard, I sure appreciate it. And thank you. Thanks.